0: Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stemcell.
1: My name is Ali Brivandu. I am the professor of laboratory of synthetic embryology, a professor at the Rockefeller University, and for full disclosure, I am also a co-founder of a startup company called Rumi Scientific, which is based in New York. So already you can guess by the title of my talk that there are rules that you recognize but somehow recombine in ways that are unusual. Obviously, human, embryo and organ, of course, but what is synthetic? I started my career as a basic developmental biologist and I was interested on the molecular pathways that are involved in cell fate determination. In other words, how does a cell know if she's going to be heart or brain or bone or cartilage? And that that of course comes from the study of model systems. And one of my favorite one is what you see on your screen. Here I have li- lined up 10 different embryos. Don't this is from the Xenopus system. This is a frog <laughs> that likes to live in high altitude lake in Africa. And what is amazing about it is not the geography, but this amazing ability that you're going to see in this time-lapse. When I launch this video, you will see that there are things going on in this ball of cells pretty much synchronously, not very clear at the beginning. And then as you observe this in time, every single one of them becomes a tadpole that is nearly identical to another. And the timing of it, the timing of generation of this complexity has always been mind-blowing. You go from one cell of the fertilized egg to the 40 million cell of uh, Xenopus tadpole in about 48 hours. So I'm just highlighting this as the complexity of a tadpole from 40 million going to 40 million cells from one cell. This self-organization of generating a tadpole from a single egg is what has been driven me for about 25 years, Setting up the molecular pathways involved in formation of the brain, the eye, muscles, blood, all the internal organs all derived from the germ layers, the embryonic germ layers. But then naturally you get to a point I think at least for me, in my career, where I have to ask if, if these are model systems, how faithful are these models? In fact, what are they really modeling? And we like, to, we like to think that these model systems are teaching us something about ourselves. So the question I'm asking here is to what extent what we learn from frogs and tadpoles from the first cell cycle onward to generate millions of cells that ultimately, in our case, generates us, How does this process evolutionary conserved? What are the mechanisms that are maintained from amphibian system all the way to primates? And of course, what are the species specific attributes that we all have that makes us different than a a frog or a bird or a mouse? So what you're seeing here is basically what we know about in terms of morphology of the human embryo. uh, At day zero, which is fertilization, the two nucleus of the sperm and the egg get together to generate a single cell and about five days after we are made of a ball of cells of about 20 or 250 cells and it looks very much like a soccer ball with a tennis ball inside of it the tennis ball in this case is located on top at 12 o'clock from these two time periods zero to five days the ivf clinics have done a great job in characterizing the human embryo. Albeit with the small numbers, but everything that could have been done at the level of cells, at the level of organization, and cell division proliferation has been documented. But as these embryos are implanted, then a huge black box exists where we no longer know what is going on exactly. But uh, then at the other end, like about a month later, we see this kind of picture of fetal organization at about day 35, So what you're looking at on the right is how beautiful you are, complete with your gills underneath the head and the tail. And this is how we begin our development in utero. I'm going to address the black box that happens from day five, a stage that we call blastula, a mysterious stage that we call gastrula, about two weeks after development, day 17 in this slide. The formation of a nervous system, you're looking at the dorsal view of a human embryo after about three weeks. The brain in the anterior is still open. The spinal cord is zipping down to close itself. And this stage is called norilla. These are stages that, as you can imagine, are near nearly impossible to have access to. Women don't even know they are pregnant for the first two weeks. And so access to this kind of tissue, for example, the picture I'm showing you at day 17, has been by complete accidents where post-mortem dissection by uh, very talented pathologist saw these structures in the uterus and deduced that there must be early human embryos. And this is how limited our knowledge is currently about our own development. And I kind of find this a bit strange because we have a resolution in understanding the fruit fly and all other modern systems. And yet this is where we are in our own understanding. So it's very important to realize that the formation of the body axis, all the main cell lineage, they all take place in a very short time during that period. So if we're going to be looking at the origin of where tissues and specialized biological activities come from, we really have to have, we have to be able somehow to study them at the earliest time points of their formation and their genesis. But there is something more important that I always use for my students, and that's the quote from Lewis Rupert that says, it's not birth, marriage, or death, but gastrulation, which is truly the most important time in your life. Uh, we lost Lewis Rupert, unfortunately, last year, but his influence remains. And I'm sure that you appreciate why he is using this as a metaphor for us to realize what is really important. Gastrulation is a time when the three-body axes are formed. So we change symmetry, we break symmetry from a sphere to what makes our body axis, anterior, posterior, dorsal, ventral, and right and left. And if you miss that moment, or if things do not happen right, then I don't think you and I will be sitting having this discussion as we're going through. So what I'm going to tell you is where we are in our understanding of these stages, mostly focusing on the gastric and neurula stage. And I will basically reflect a mirror that shows your past. As we're moving forward, the way we can measure um, what is it that we know is to develop techniques that did not exist before. This is one such a technique. You're looking at a day 12 human embryo, that's about 1,000 cells. This is post-attachment. We generate a technology where the embryo can in vitro attach to an artificial substrate. And what you notice here, in the center, the green cells, these are the tennis ball that was inside of that soccer ball. And the soccer ball itself has landed on it, almost like a parachute, to create this structure that has radial symmetry, as you can see. And so every time I see radial symmetry or breaking of symmetry, I get extremely excited because I can recognize some of the cell types here based on what i saw many years ago so i'm going to show you what the structure looked like this was the first time we could look at a human embryo at day 12 um again it would be impossible to imagine to do this in vivo so this is our first glimpse of what is going on i'm going to put you in a little drone and give you a tour and then take you inside with optical sections and then pull you out so if we do this you can see that the embryo is actually a structure that's relatively thick. It's not a single cell. Optical section will take you inside and reveal the presence of two different cavities, one surrounded by the green cell, the amniotic cavity, and the other one, much bigger, that is localized right underneath it. And this is the beginning of cavitation in human embryo. You can see that not the genetic signature is at the bottom of the picture, Oxford in green, GATA6 in, in red, and GATA3 in blue, CBX2 in light blue. And it doesn't matter what these uh, signatures are. What really is important to me for the purpose of this talk is that you appreciate that all the information necessary and sufficient to take a blastocyst embryo to an attached embryo within the second week of development is already contained in the cells themselves. There is zero maternal influence in this development. This is all in vitro, yet somehow the cells move forward in a manner that's very, very similar to what I showed you in the frog embryo where a fertilized egg can self-organize to generate a tadpole. So what we're witnessing here is self-organization of early embryonic structures that includes cavitation and includes self rate determination. That was extremely intriguing to us, and and so we started dissecting the system. You can imagine at single cell RNA-seq level, all the molecular markers you can imagine. And that, of course, every time you walk in uncharted territories, you see things that you have not seen before. And one example was the discovery of a new cell type that had never been seen in mammalian embryos. We call this cell type the yoke-stack trophectodum. The genetic signature is underneath. Again, it doesn't really matter. But that highlights the importance of studying for, for studying human embryos if we're ultimately trying to understand our own development. This cell type again does not exist in any other model system, therefore cannot be discovered. And so as we move forward, we see things and we appreciate evolutionary conserved phenomena, and we also appreciate unique human signatures. But it remains obvious to you that there is a limit in which these kind of studies can, can move forward. So some time ago in the 1970s with the emergence of the IVF technology, the rule was defined called the 14-day rule, which some of you are familiar with. And this was based on the fact that if we could generate human embryos outside of the womb, we would call them test tube babies at the time, if you can fertilize a human egg with a sperm and grow it for about a week before you implant in the uterus, then what if we could go farther? And the technology did not exist. the discussion started uh, maturing to a point where somehow by a series of criteria that I would be happy to describe in detail, the line in the sand was drawn at day 14. In other words, it would be, if one day technology was available, it would be okay to study the human embryo in vitro for as long as one does not pass day 14. And so that became the 14-day rule. And now as you're seeing in the slide, we're already at day 12. We move forward beyond the, day 13, and at that moment, we had to make a decision in my lab with my colleagues as to what are we going to do? Are we gonna allow this self-organization to move forward and challenge the line, or are we gonna stop? And these samples are very, very precious. As you can imagine, each one of them is like a piece of diamond. And the collective decision here, one of the toughest one that I have made at the end, was to stop the experiment until the debates move forward. So we didn't go past day 13 in this experiment. But one, I would always argue that even if we could, and we don't know yet really, I want know a little bit more, but even if we could, we would never have enough human embryos to do the kind of studies that we do in model system. By definition, the surgical material would always be limiting. And therefore, we had to come up with an alternative and start imagining that perhaps we can model human embryos. And this is what I'm going to tell you today about. And that's what the word synthetic comes from. Um, I'm going to tell you about three aspects of human development that can be modeled using human embryonic stem cells. As you all know, human embryonic stem cells come from the human embryo. They five, they come from the tennis ball, the ICM, and you can culture them indefinitely in a state of pluripotency. Another word blocking differentiation. You can also trigger them to move forward in development and generate the different cell types. So we call these models, we give the oids prefix it. So you're looking at the gastruloids, of course, because it's not really a gastrula, but it's a model of the gastrula. It's a synthetic embryo that models gastrulation. then I'm gonna tell you about synthetic human organs. And I'm gonna tell you about the formation of human synthetic brains and human synthetic craniofacial structures complete with sensory organ. And then I will finish by showing you to what extent these models can be useful and can help us actually understand human diseases that starts very early in the development with unexpected uh, outcomes. And I will use Huntington's disease as an example to make that point. I will close the talk by giving you a picture of the horizon as to where I think my lab is going, where I think the field of human biology is going, And then hopefully we can engage in a series of interesting discussions or questions. Okay, so the story of Sandetigambios starts by taking regular mammalian culture, which you see on your left, each white dot is a cell, and these are colonies that come in different shape and different size. This is a Dapistani. And as you know, for years, the field of mammalian biology may be mouse or human embryonic stem cells use this kind of culture to evaluate the potential of a cell to give rise to a different cell type but as you can see not one culture is the same as the other so quantifying this phenomenon that were measured was extremely difficult with the same stimulation most of the time giving rise to a different outcome depending on what lab was doing this and, and it became very clear that some sort of uh some sort of a change needs to happen if we're going to be serious in following these cells in a very highly quantitative fashion. So, together with my great colleague in theoretical physics, uh, Rockefeller, Eric Sigia, and our talented postdoc, Arya Warmflash, we decided to generate microchips and force the cells to grow within confined geometry. This is a close up of the microchip. You see the geometry, in this case, is circles. The large circles are about 1,000 microns. The small circles are 85 microns. And this is in the microchip. So we seed the cells, and they're forced to attach to these structures, to these shapes. And we control density. And more importantly, we can track every single cell in real time using deep neural network, artificial intelligence, and more modern techniques. So what you're looking at on the right is the corner of one of the large colonies, and you probably would be able to see that there is a red dot on top of them, and that's a tracking device that's being used to follow these cells in real time, not only to get the dynamic of morphogenesis and changes, but also to understand cell-cell interactions, uh, cell proliferation rates, cell organization, as I'm going to show you in a second. And so now we're ready to, to move forward in a platform that's standardized that we can quantify with subcellular resolution. And so what is the first thing that we do? We say, let's go and see to what extent what I learned from the frog, birds, fish, and mouse is relevant, that evolutionary conservation of the earliest aspect of signaling, the first signals that are exchanged in a ball of cells. And those systems have established a hierarchy that goes from BMP4, as a TGA beta. Uh, ligand to induction of the wnt 3 a a pathway, and then ultimately the induction of the smat 2 pathway or nodal active wind pathway. And this has been conserved over millions of years. So for us, it was natural to ask to what extent is this conserved in humans? So we started by, uh, adding BMP4 to these microchips in human organic stem cells and asked what would the consequence of activating the first signaling pathway be in this human naive or pre cells. And when you do that, something pretty amazing happens. First of all, the cells are maintaining pre media and this is a step presentation of BMP4 for 48 hours. This is the little diagram that I have on top of the slide for you. This is one of those 1000 micron that's zoomed in from the chip. If you now ask by a variety of approaches, immunostaining, single cell RNA-seq, CRISPR-Cas9, uh, tagging, what is going on when EMP4 is applied, something amazing opens up in front of your eyes. Inside of the same colony, the center of the cells express SOX2. This is the molecular signature of ectoderm. Just around that domain, cells start expressing Brachyury, which is a universal marker for mesoderm, the second embryonic layer. And as you move, every single marker that you would look at will display this radial symmetry self-organizing a large number of cell types in the same colony. This is without any other exogenous influence. The only ligand that is being added here, the single factor that generates this complexity is BMP4, an activator of the SMAD1, 5, and 8 pathway. So to me, that was stunning, and to my team. Again, it reminded me of, self-organization of a tadpole from a single cell. Here, we're starting with cells that are homogeneous. We give them a signal and we create this tremendous diversity that somehow self-organizes itself in radial symmetry in these structures. So we notice that germical confinement is actually sufficient to induce self-organization in this, what we call now, gastruloids because they have all the markers and cell types of gastrulation. Um, we have the real-time dynamics with subcellular resolution that gives us the opportunity to dissect the molecular and the basis of human gastrulation in these models for the first time. And of course, we have control over geometry, size, density, signaling strength, and genetics with genetic manipulations and marking with CRISPR-Cas9. So over the years, we took that system forward and we approach it from many different angles. This is a collection of paper that came out immediately downstream of the development of this technology, each one of them highlighting different aspects of human development and comparing and contrasting that aspect with what we know of model systems, not only in terms of cell types, organization, but also in terms of dynamics. As I said, I'm not gonna go through every single detail. I'll be happy to respond to any specific questions that they are but we noticed something very important at the time, and that's what I want to highlight in the next few slides. These two markers that are jumping in the slide, these are, so brachiuri and snail, are considered to be the markers of meat gasulation. In other words, once the embryo starts gastrulating, these markers are expressed. One of the rationale behind putting the line at the day 14 originally, was to make sure, at least based on those discussions back then, that we don't go to a place where the human obvio is breaking symmetry and therefore organizes the axis. And now, clearly in these models, it seems that if we're not close to that, we might even be slightly be passing that line. And I will come back to tell you where do we think we are in time in a second. Okay, so the other important lesson we learned from these human models when you look at this kind of self-organization you cannot help asking yourself how does this how does this happen does the blue cells emerge first and then a wave from the center propagates to the edge what is the mechanism of this self-organization that generates this diversity and that answer was actually quite easy to find because if you look at the same microchip that i showed you then you ask, okay, so what happens if we shift down the size? If you go to 250 micrometer in diameter, you notice that you lose the blue cells, you lose the center fate of these castilloids. And if I shift down again one more time, at 125 micrometers, we see the same thing again, we lose the center fate, we use the yellow or red cells. And so that really easy and intuitively tells you that self-organization in these structures occurs from the edge toward the center and not the other way around There's a very simple mathematical assumption, uh, easy to prove that the way this must be happening is that somehow the cells start changing their fate at the edge and they move gradually toward the center the best way to visualize this is to use a CRISPR-Cas9 tagging system where you can mark ectoderm, mesoderm, and extraembryonic or endoderm tissue. And you can watch this in real time using the tools that I described in my microchip uh, modeling uh, platform. And this is what... So first conclusion is that the patterns are controlled from the edge of the colony. And the way you demonstrate that is by looking at the cells, where everybody is blue, that's pre potency then you notice that the edge of the colony turns off blue red is turned on, moving toward the center, and then at the edge again, red is turned off and yellow is turned on. So this is, a, this is one of those, uh, and these markers are markers of fate, which themselves are responsive to signaling uh, aspects. That means that the first signalings come from the edge of the colony and somehow collapse toward the center. And this is an important aspect of self-organization I have not seen before, in fact, It might contrast with the aspects of self-organization that you see in non-living systems. For example, the formation of a snowflake that starts from the center and then moves out. This is more like fountains that pick up at the edge and then crash in the center. And that's how discrete fates are established from the edge moving forward. And that is, again, one of those scenarios where you start appreciating the dynamic of change. this is not cell migration. Cells are not moving from the edge of the colony toward the center. This is active transcriptional regulation of the genetic code. The blue SOX2 is turned off. Bacteria is induced. Brachyuri is turned off. SOX17 is induced. To me, that kind of being able to turn on and off transcriptional program in this kind of system was not as expected as maybe it should have. But that also gives you another window as to how much do we really understand between the connection of signaling pathways and the transcriptional response. I will be happy to go more to more details if you're interested. So ultimately, a collection of studies clearly established that the way these patterns are formed is like the cell must have some sort of a ruler that she uses to measure her distance from the edge. If the distance is maximum, then she will be blue if there is the minimum then she would be yellow or green depending on what you're measuring so there is this this magic ruler that somehow measures that and then the question is what what are the components of the rulers and the answer is very simple there are really two components the ruler is made of a physical mechanism of edge sensing so cells can sense the edge everything has a contour obviously in biology And so there is a mechanism that allows the measurements of the distance from that contour. And then the second one is mediated by a reaction-diffusion model, a model that was suggested originally by Turing, whereby a ligand induces the expression of his own inhibitor as an immediate early response. But the inhibitor diffuses much faster than the ligand itself. So at any given point, the inhibitor can block the action of the ligand. And that explains originally on mathematical modeling projections by Turing, and then ultimately demonstrated to be the case in a variety of organisms. The way the zebra makes its pattern or the way different bands are generated within the mesodermal or ectodermal layers all follow the reaction diffusion principle uh, predicted by Turing in his, in his modeling. Okay. Now, if we go down the cascade of the events, as I mentioned, BMP4 is sitting on top of the hierarchy as defined by model systems, but immediately downstream is wind or activity. So we repeat this experiment, but this time around, we replace BMP4 first with winds, and now I'm showing you pizza slices as opposed to the whole uh, circle, Application of Win 3A, activation of the wind pathway, also leads to self-organization, as you can see by the expression of sox 2 like URI CDX2 or sox 17 on the right. There is a little bit of a difference in the geometry of self-organization, but all the cell types are here. So, so far, so good. BMP4 is allowing self-organization. Win 3, Win 3A, operating downstream of BMP4 can fulfill that function. But then if I take you one step farther, what about the active in nodal and SMAT2 pathway? The answer is absolutely nothing happens. So somehow while BMP4 can induce self-organization and Win3A carry that information independently downstream, stream, in on its own or nodal or SMAT2 activation by any form or shape does not generate self-organization. Everybody stays blue. There is no emergence of mesoderm, extraorganic tissue, or endoderm. So that was a bit puzzling, especially for me, because I spent a big chunk of my life demonstrating that Activin was working as a morphogen in model systems, generating different fates based on different duration of exposure, different concentration of exposure. And here, the ultimate model says that Activin is doing nothing in this in the world that I'm studying. And we try to look at what is what is it that's missing in that system that the frog has or the fish had, and somehow we don't seem to have where we where we are wrong from the beginning and we're measuring something that is not relevant to to what it is that we're trying to prove. And Anna Yoni, very talented graduate student in my lab, went back and revisited this, ex, this experiment. She Believe that there must be a hierarchy in the memory of signaling that somehow self chronicle their journey and they remember who they are based on what they had seen before. And this is how she came up with this observation. She applies activin to the gastruloids. She does RNA-seq at different time point, one hour, 2.5, four, eight, 12. We can see on the panel on the left, that there is a major induction of transcription two and a half hour after SMAT2 activation by Activin. But then somehow this does not maintain itself. It, it's an adaptive response. It peaks and it collapses. So it's not that Activin cannot induce the markers of different fates It's more like the induction cannot be maintained. And you can do this by looking at individual markers. For example, and the PCR I show you in the center, you can see the expression of a couple of markers, eomesodermine or goosecoid, and you can see again that what is being seen globally can be reproduced by individual genes. So big induction at 2.5 hours for both uh, eomes and goosecoid, and then decline um, without maintenance. So Anna thinks, oh, what about, What about the memory? What about if the cells need to see winds in order to be responsive to activin later on? And if they don't have that memory, they cannot maintain what they see. And so she does an experiment that's shown on the diagram above. She presents the cells 24 hours with wind 3 a She washes up the medium and then presents activin to them. And the consequence of that is now suddenly Active in response is maintained and stabilized in time. You can see it by the RTPCR examples in the lower part of the central panel. She repeated this experiment in many different ways. I'm not gonna go to the details again, but you can actually measure the distance of the memory. In other words, how, how much can a cell maintain the memory of what they have seen? You can, for example, present Win3A for 12 hours, keep the cells quiet for 10, 12, 14, 20, 36 hours, and then present active in, and ask how long does that memory last? And you can quantify that very beautifully. You can do your compound analysis to figure out what is the molecular basis of this memory. And again, this is published in the references that I'm putting uh, at the bottom of the slide. So I'm not gonna take you to details, but it was not the expected players. It was not. Uh, you know, changes in receptor or changes in signal transduction, phosphorylation activation or inhibition, it turned out that memory is guided by epigenetic marks. So factors like BRD4 are the factors that by decorating DNA somehow establish and maintain that memory. But in addition to understanding that, of course, history matters if you're going to know who you are, You know, land on Another unexpected thing, thanks to Ian, Martin, and, and uh, Tanya Kano in my lab. This is an experiment I'm showing you where activin is presented alone. And as you can see, all the cells are blue. Win3a and BMP4, within that window of time, do not induce any specific markers on this particular case, the marker called guscoid. But if you combine them together, Win3a and activin would be sufficient to induce the expression of something that none of the ligands alone was able to induce. Again, guscoid only comes up if you present the combination of wind and activin. And that was an unexpected side product of this uh, uh, result. And we got you know, extremely surprised by this. And I should say I was extremely excited by this result because if you say, um, well, what does guscoid demarcate? What kind of a marker guscoid is? The answer is the market is one of the most important territories of the gastrulating embryo, a territory that we call the organizer, in amphibians or the node in birds and mammals. This goes back to a pioneering experiment done in the 1920s by the German School of Umbriology. Here you see Hans Spemann and Hilda Mangold, and Hilda did an experiment that really changed and revolutionized embryology the way we understand it. She basically took a descriptive science and started manipulating the different parts of the embryo, asked very simply, where does the information come from? For example, in that sphere of cells, where is the formation of the head coming from? Is it North Pole, South Pole, is it in the equator? And in doing so, she landed in something that was extremely unexpected to her as well. It figured out that there's a very specific region of the embryo that by color code in red in that sphere, somewhere in one side of the equator, that when taken out from one embryo and transferred to another embryo, has this amazing ability to generate a secondary axis. In other words, you get a tadpole with two heads, two dorsal axis, two heart, one gut, four eyes. And this is just by a sample transfer of a handful of cells, about a 100 or so. And she correctly concluded that these cells have all the information that's necessary and sufficient to give rise to the entire nervous system to head structures, and therefore, the information might—the information is present. The controls were that, of course, if you take different parts of the embryo and do the same experiment, you will not get the same result. Therefore, there was something very special about those cells, and she called those cells the organizer because they had the ability to organize a complete body access from the head to the tail. This was 1924, Sperman got, um, 19, early 1920s, Sperman got the Nobel Prize for it. Unfortunately, without acknowledging Kilda, process that still seems to be going on in academia. And it was quickly dismissed after that as a frog specific thing, that this cannot be reproduced in other species, it must be an artifact of the way amphibians are growing. Until the uh, American School of Embryology, Conrad Waddington, is known for his landscape and other things. It's one of my favorite embryologists. certainly the only one that smokes pipe, I guess, while doing experiments. But he did this very pioneering work and reproduced Hilda's experiment in the chick. So you opened up a chick embryo, transplanted a very specific region, the architecture is different, at that very specific region to another egg, and showed that the consequence of this grafting is that you generate a secondary axis that is shown just next to this picture. The long axis is the endogenous one of the bird, and the one uh, derived from the graft is adjacent to it, to the left. So that suddenly became that mm, maybe this is not a, a frog thing that maybe is evolutionally conserved when I 1933. And then ultimately coming closer, one of my favorite embryologists, Rosa Beddington, in 1989 showed that you can do the same experiment in mammals, that there is a very specific region in the embryo that has all the information that is necessary and sufficient to give rise to brain and secondary axis. This is conserved over tens of millions of years. So why is this all interesting and all this to do with with guscoid? It turns out that molecular characterization of, of the early frog embryo demonstrated that guscoid, that one marker, is specific to the organizer so once we see once anna and ian and see the emergence of this marker we automatically think of the classical experiment we're looking at the formation of a human organizer after more than a century plus of discovering it in other animals but organizer as you see from this slide is a functional definition it's not something that's morphologically characterized or really based on molecular marker expression only. It's something that has the information to generate a complete secondary axis and the nervous system and the brain. And how are we going to demonstrate that functionally from our models? And, you know, obviously, the kind of experiment that we're doing in model system will not, are not imaginable in humans. And we came up to Waddington's essay and we thought, well, is it possible to perhaps do intraspecie uh, grafting. And this is the experiment we did. We start with activating and wind presentation that induces guscoid at the edge of the colony. We use the shrinking technique where we lose the center phase to enrich for the cells at the edge that are guscoid positive. We take microchip and we graft a single 500 micrometer gastriloid model inside of the bird. egg, We close the window, we put an incubator. The next day, something magical happens. The bird's embryo is on your left. You recognize the head and the trunk. The one on the right, that is marked by red, this is the lineage tracer by CRISPR Cas9 that allows us to track the human cells, has now broken symmetry, becomes an axis starting from a circle, and establishes its own territory and ecosystem side by side. Inside of a bird egg. And so this is a functional essay for the organizer. This is the best that we can imagine for in vivo validation of the modeling that we're trying to do, and to appreciate the difference between functionality and, and descriptive assumptions. This is a this is the first example of a human birth camera, a grafting interspecies camera, but it follows the tradition of experimental or biology established many years ago, not only in the amphibian system, but also by giants like Nicole Le in France, and quail chimeras and others. But this was really satisfying for us because we see the development and emergence of the different self this time around, not in a glass chip, but in an ecosystem, again, of an obel. I'm going to put you in a drone again and give you a little picture of the landscape. What I'm going to show you is what is inside of those dashed red lines and uh, gray is dappy the human markers and the code is written underneath you appreciate very quickly it's again it's a bit hilly here in that in that landscape but you can clearly see the emergence of an axis optical sections will take you inside to show you that the human cells are ducts very nicely underneath the bird and if i pull you out of this and give you the top view you can appreciate the axis you know the nodal code of opens part of the brain and the anterior and the emergence of the lateral piece uh, as the development moves forward. So this was extremely gratifying because it was a functional essay on a human embryonic model that otherwise could have not been imagined. So the first human birth camera and the beginning of thinking about symmetry breaking and consequences and how does one transition. From these structures, from these 2D structures to 3D structures. Um, at this time, Miho Simunovic joins the lab and starts developing an essay in which the same cell, human organic stem cells, are now induced by bmp 4 and then other trickeries that involves uh, putting WINT and its inhibitor DKK, trying to recreate be- some sort of a reaction diffusion in three dimensional models as opposed to two. And the consequence of that is that if you do this in the epiblast, you clearly see that that sphere that was started homogeneously, one side of the sphere is now different than the other side. So he showed that you can break symmetry as long as you maintain spherical geometry. And following that, he used his own amazing ability. Miho came from the physics world and realized very quickly that you can actually, as others had shown before him, but not in the human context, you can actually induce fate by changing the stiffness of the substrate in which the cells are grown. So, you know, from 1.5 kilopascal to different levels, and that has consequences in fate. And he used this approach of changing stiffness to generate GATA-6 cells, which are prim- primitive mandoderm, GATA-3, which are extra extrobinate tissue, and recombine the spheres that he had generated together with these three different cell types, plate them in this specific reverse pyramid plates. And the consequence of that was that the embryo was self-organizing now in three dimensions. You can see the cavity that's surrounded by the green cells. You can see the extra embryonic tissues surrounding the whole structure. Everything seems to be symmetrical along a given axis, but you recognize these structures based on what I showed you in the in vitro attached embryo. Again, the two cavities being present within the same proportion and within very similar uh, cell numbers, everything in terms of cell diameter density, et cetera. And you can do your single-cell RNA-seq experiments with these, of course. The number of biological samples, natural samples are going to be limiting, but you get better than 80% alignment. So it's not perfect, but it's very close. And the other thing that's mind-blowing is that if you look three days as opposed to one day post-missing, now you can see not only the emergence of a three-dimensional structure, but also symmetry breaking, where the, the green cells that were a sphere are now half yellow and half green. And that's the formation of the anterior posterior body axis. Morphologically, they're extremely similar. So the natural human embryo shown on the left natural means the product of the sperm and the egg, of course, and synthetic 3D embryos derived from our embryonic stem cells. They actually same dimensions, they in vitro attach, they move forward to the best that we know with the same speed. In fact, if you go to CVS and buy a pregnancy test and stick it in the culture, you will test positive for pregnancy. So all the hormonal secretions and others are also in line with the detection of what we call pregnancy. But then that raises a big question as we're moving forward again and we have to pause, is to say, what do we do with the 14-day rule? Because we don't have a T0 in this system. The time starts for the for counting T14, the moment the sperm enters, that's T0. And then everything is measured after that. I'm stem cells, certainly the ones we're using here that I derived in two, 2000, 2002, have been in culture for 20 years. They have been frozen in time. So they don't have a T0. As these structures are moving forward, therefore, we need to start thinking about how we redefine and recalibrate what is what what could be done versus what should be done. And so I'm gonna pause this and I come back at the end to tell you what is the limit of uh, where we are. And I'm gonna shift gear now to show you self-organization of synthetic organs. So if I can make an embryo, I guess we certainly should be able to use the same technology to make organs such as the brain or craniofacial structure and many others. And I'm gonna tell you why this is important why we think is important as you all know you have heard about organoids organoids are self-organizing structures that model human on, human organs such as lung or intestinal structures or sometimes brain structures uh called cerebral organoids the reality of these organoids is the same as in cell culture they're beautiful and they can do a lot of things but you cannot standardize them each one of them is different than the other for example if you look at the collection of the cerebral organoids each one of them is beautiful with different kind of self-organization, but not one of them can be quantified and statistically validated compared to the others. So we use the same rationale. We use the same macrochip, but instead of putting the embryonic stem cells with this, for the purpose of this talk, I will focus on the formation of the brain. As you heard from the introduction, that's how, that's how I started my career about elucidating the pathways involved in self-determination. So the default model, as you heard, was established first in the frog. It's one of those interesting cases where you don't need to provide information to generate a cell type. You actually have to get rid of negative information that blocks a cell type to differentiate toward a given fate. And so we tested that in humans very early. And of course, the default model, to my satisfaction, is evolutionarily maintained from folks to humans. And there is some sort of a self-organization that we call rosettes. But again, this self-organization is not, can be perfectly standardized because you can see the distance between the colonies or the rosettes. You can see the, the spacing is a bit off. There is some homogeneity, but not as good as the macro patterns. So we decided to ask, can we now grow under the default structures that can be standardized and quantified using the same tools? And so we did we we'll call this structure cerebroids. If you look at the molecular signature, again, there is a radial symmetry and self-organization. The center is NCAT. It represents the ventral structure of the brain. And as you look at your markers, Pax6 for the dorsal anterior neuron, the most dorsal anterior part of the telencephalic region. And additionally, you can demarcate, in addition to Pax6 and the ventral side, you can also ask, For the presence of sensory markers, in this case, LHX2, which is a marker of sensory tackles, one of the early ones. And again, we detect some sort of a radial symmetry where things are organized from the center to the edge or the edge to the center. If you ask, where are we in development based on these molecular markers, this is the model I showed you in my first slide about no in human so we're around somewhere between day 22 and 25 of development and if we ask where are we again we're in the most dorsal anterior part of the brain at the time where the brain is still open and we remain in that area uh, that includes the markers that I can go in detail about which one we have we're pretty confident that that's where we are and that's the time we're in and again we're walking uncharted territory so we're looking forward and we do almost on a daily basis see things that we hadn't seen before. Now, this 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 is a place that I could have not imagined in graduate school too I would be able to ever walk, but but it is gorgeous to see that we're there. Again from frog studies, you know that if you follow the default um uh induction or neural induction by activation of the smad one five pathway by mp four, we learn all our lessons from the frog, by the way. We can generate not only the brain, but we can also generate the neural crest and sensory organs. So, in this micro pattern, we follow the same protocol. The Default is followed by BMP4 step presentation, pac 6 uh, neural markers, Sox10 neural crest, Six1, uh, TFAP2A for epidermis, and and I'm going t- t- taking you to this z-stack in and out uh, in, in the z-axis to show you this beautiful self-organization with with uh, neurons in the center, neural quest around following it, and then everything covered with epidermis. And again, in terms of timing, we are in the same time, we're about day 22 to 25, and this is the territory. We're a little bit uh, posterior to where we were before. We're now walking toward the diencephalon and and a little bit at the edge of the diencephalon and diencephalic structures at the earliest time of the formation of the nervous system. Okay, so, and then I'm gonna show you just utility about this kind. Of, is one thing to learn about where we come from and how we're made at the molecular level. It's something else to say, can this be useful to model human diseases which cannot be modeled in other animals? And, you know, no other generation is a signature of that Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington's disease, ALS, MS, all these diseases have failed to really be pushed forward. Not because I think the resolution of the techniques are not good, but because the animal models are not faithful to what they're modeling, and I argue that if we're going to be serious about modeling human diseases, then one has to use human models to do that, and this synthetic embryos and organs give us the opportunity to perhaps think about generating human models for disease. So we started with what I thought was the most straightforward one. Huntington's disease is a dominant mutation that's caused, as you know, by expansion of a CAG repeat. And the first exon of the Huntington gene is considered a neurodegenerative disease with no therapy or cure. And again, I believe that this is the, not because of the way we're measuring this is because the model that we're using to measure that in agreement with this one of the first thing that my postdoc Albert Russo did is to go to the human genome and put a comparative study among all the species for that locus all the species that we have and show that there is one form of Huntington that only exists in hominids, and that's the higher aids you cannot model this by definition in rodents because at least this one signature of Huntington transcript does not exist, and maybe that's one of the problems in trying to model using platforms that are not relevant to human development. So he used CRISPR-Cas9 to generate a collection of isogenic lines with different CAG lens. 22 is the non-Huntington, and it went all the way up to 74, we have longer insertions now. Also generated a minus-minus allele, which represents a loss of function. Again, all in isogenic background. So the entire genome is the same except for that one mutation. If you look at the gastrinoid in the macro pattern, the 22 CAG is a non-Huntington. The 58 CAG is a Huntington. And you don't need artificial intelligence to realize that there is a phenotypic signature that is very different between the two. And this is, to me, amazing because you modify just the repeat in a single gene And the consequence of that is this phenotypic signature that is easily detectable. The other surprising thing is that this phenotype follows the length of CAG. So, as you can see, as you move from 22 CAG to 74, the center becomes smaller and smaller, and you can measure that with subcellular tools. So, this generation of CAG length dependent phenotype allowed us to move forward and ask can we now find causality? And maybe can we, can we, start thinking about how to deal with this. More importantly to me, and this is still controversial, here I propose that Huntington is actually a developmental disease, not a neurodegenerative disease. It's more like autism than it is like Alzheimer's. And we can discuss that later if you're interested, and I will give you a list of evidence as to why I believe this is the case. You can use your cerebroid, your synthetic brains to do the same, Again, you can see the difference between the expanded CAG and the wild-type or non-Huntington CAG. You get a shrinkage of the NCAD, the central domain of the ventral part. Interestingly, if you look at the loss of function of HTT-minus-minus, the phenotype of the cerebroate actually is the same as the Huntington expansion, not the same as the non-Huntington. That was the first suggestion that perhaps gain of CAG lens represents a loss of function and not a gain of toxic function as it was assumed before. And that's what we argue. And now this can be validated in a variety of systems, including in our noriloid system. Here you can see, again, 20 CAG for non-HD and then two different expanded CAG. And if you compare that with the knockout, HDT minus minus, you can see that the knockout phenocopy is better the CAG expanded than it does the non-Huntington. And you can quantify that using a variety of tools. So this to us means that is a loss of function. The most stringent way to demonstrate that you're dealing with a dominant negative loss of function is to try to rescue it. So here I'm showing you the expression of PAC6, both in non-Huntington, hg 20 CAG, as well as extended and minus minus. You can see that there is different phenotypic signatures with the minus-minus being, again, a little bit closer to the expanded than wild-type. You can rescue the minus-minus, of course, by putting wild-type on in it, and you restore the phenotype back. That's not that unexpected. You lose something, you add something, you're back. But then the spectacular thing is that you can actually rescue the expanded CAG by putting more wild-type protein in it. So now you bring the disease phenotype back to a non-disease phenotype. So this was the final uh, and the, probably the, syringid, the most stringent evidence that we're dealing with a, a loss of function and not a gain. And there are consequences for that in big pharma right now in the way clinical trial by Roche and others are done or were done. But in my own startup, we use this platform now in robotic platform, 96 Plays, combined with deep neural nets. And we get things that have not been detected before i show you one example of a of a positive heat that comes from rumi Uh, on the left is non-huntington on the in the middle or on the right is huntington expanded on a newly platform you can see the you can see the tremendous difference between the phenotypic signatures if you do this unbiasedly and you screen thousands and thousands of compounds every once in a while you land on one that when applied to the 56CAG expanded, actually rescues the phenotype or makes the phenotype much better compared to the non-HD. So these screens are moving forward in many different directions. And hopefully next time when I talk to you, I will tell you more about the fact that we're past now, the mouse trials, and we're moving forward. Uh, how is this relevant to human? This was done in collaboration with Sarah Tabrizi in the UK in London. Uh, She is one of the world specialists of uh, pediatric Huntington's disease. She sent us biopsies from from her patients. We reprogram them to iPSCs. We differentiate them, and you can see the same signatures occurring in tissues derived from patients, as we do in our models, validating the relevance or the faithfulness of the models compared to what we're trying to measure at this point. I'm going to end my talk here by giving you a quick a snapshot of what is ahead and what what we think we're going as we imagine the kind of work that I'm describing here has different dimension than just science. And even as scientists, we have to be very careful, especially as scientists, we have to be very careful to what extent we have social acceptance as we move forward. This is the next generation of cerebroid or scientific brains. Here I show you self-organization of circuitry. Uh, not fate anymore. You can see that there is pulsing in this system. There is intra and intercommunication among the cells. Uh, You can actually measure the oscillators. There are at least three of them. You can measure frequency, amplitude, and everything. We have no idea what these oscillators are doing. But this is the beginning of maybe even dreaming about modeling human psychiatric disease for which neurodegeneration is not necessarily the base, but wiring and the maintenance of wiring is an issue. And again, this kind of cognitive dysfunction cannot be modeled in in the rodent system so i believe this is one of the horizons the other one is the formation of primordial germ cells so if i can make brain and all the other organs can i make ovaries the answer is yes this is rus to its xx background and what i'm going to show you in in um, this macro pattern is the generation of synthetic ovarian structure with a beautiful egg sitting in the center of it surrounded by this supporting cells. And this opens up the hope and the promise, at least for reproductive medicine, to overcome one of the most important limiting factors, which is degradation of the quality and quantity of eggs in women as age moves forward. These experiments, however, at this stage, are on pause, they're on hold, because we need to move the debate forward as to how do we functionally test these systems. At the end, we'll need in vivo validation. So Rockefeller and our group at MIT and Baltimore, together as a collective initiative by the NIH, started a non-human primate colony. This is a marmoset, and we can derive embryonic stem cells, generate gastrural using we can generate germ cells. More importantly, we're lucky enough to maintain our collaboration with the physics group to develop ultrasound detection on a living, on a a live female model said, so we can explore the reality or or validate what our models are telling us compared to the reality of in vivo development in a non-human primate model system. And these experiments are in progress and are already unveiling aspects of development. Finally, the last scientific structure is these things we call blastoids. I'll be happy to tell you how we make them, but you appreciate their structure is very much like the early blastula, the soccer ball with the tennis ball inside of it, the way I described it early. We do, we generate those things now by large number, the in vitro implant, and we we'll look at molecular markers and the emergence of symmetry breaking. And one interesting thing was that we landed on these structures and something that looked like it was a day 15, modeling a day 15 human embryo. So we saw breaking symmetry when we look at the expression of like rac or sub 17 you can see in the middle panel, the red cells are only in one side and not on both sides. So, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. We're finally getting to a model at day 15. But then when we, when we go back and we say, how far back can we detect this? We realize that we can detect symmetry breaking at day 12. And so that was surprising because the whole basis of day 14 was the fact that gastrulation starts or on one of the basis at day 14. And now we realize, could it have been that we already were working in gastrulation stages, but we didn't know. And in order to validate this, we go back to the natural human LVO, in vitro attached. And what I'm showing you here is the first molecular signature of human gastrulation that occurs at day 12 of our development, not day 14. I should have known, this is the case with frog, fish, and all other systems, the molecular, the molecular pathways that are underlying symmetry breaking precede the morphological changes that actually makes a node or an organizer or an axis. And this is the earliest picture of your gastrulation I'm going to show you with the two cells on the left panel that are orange, and this is the beginning of the formation of the of the access at the molecular pathway. So I told you the three stories I wanted to tell you, plus the horizon. This is my Andy Warhol final slide. It allows me to highlight the contribution of all my colleagues and collaborators in the lab. I'm really lucky to have a team that is not only um, as high resolution, their scientific approach, but are willing to walk on paths that nobody else has walked before them, rather than making something that exists and better, which is perfectly fine. I I personally believe that science is driven by discovery. I want to highlight one in the list of my colleagues uh, with this king star, Andrew Baudin, one of my favorite colleagues. is applying for graduate school now at UCSD. He got his interview. You guys would be very lucky if you can catch Andrew. And with this, I want to thank all of you for your attention
0: and I appreciate your interest. But that was just a tour de force, Ali. That was just marvelous. One of the questions concerned uh, your your statement that, and I have to say, I I agree with this, uh, that Huntington's disease is actually a developmental disease, uh, not necessarily solely a, a degenerative disease. So the question was, if resolution was good enough Do you believe that you could actually see dysmorphologies in a Huntington embryo or or even a a pre-symptomatic Huntington patient?
1: It's an excellent question. And we didn't know the answer to that until a few months ago, where somewhere in Paris actually provided direct evidence by imaging human fetal uh, tissue and human fetuses that have the CAG expansion in Huntington. I believe it was 58 CAG, could be plus or minus that. But for the first time, she showed that we can detect morphological abnormalities in the developing brain in the womb. And so this idea that that this is a developmental disease is now supported by morphological manifestation during CNS development and during brain development. To me, I have to tell you, intuitively, Hunting in the protein is expressed in the fertilized egg and ubiquitously afterward in all the cells. So if we talk about a dominant negative mutation or dominant anything mutation, the simplest expectation I will have will be that the activity of the wild type protein will be disturbed from the earliest manifestation of that activity. And if that happens to be in the fertilized egg, then something is starting to happen already then due to the mutation, that affects the wild and then somehow decades after birth, the manifestation of the disease occurs. It's as if like the first domino is pushed very early on in development, but the last one falls at the time when the patient is diagnosed and there is not else to nothing else to do. If what I'm saying is true and only if what I'm saying is true, then at the best, we're dealing with symptoms and consequences when we try to fix this in the adult setting. I think if we're going to be serious about it, we probably need to think and focus a little bit more about causality, and that would require thinking about how to stop the domino chain falling by putting a cardboard in the middle of it at a given point. It doesn't have to be in utero, but certainly early interventions will have, in my, in my opinion, a really serious beneficial outcome Rather than trying to deal with it when the symptoms are already emerging.
0: Uh, Carl Willard has a question, and I'm gonna read it uh, verbatim. Uh, when you were describing your studies with micro pattern gastroloids, you made reference to the Turing reaction diffusion model, where an inducer activates a negative regulator or a repressor. We know from many studies that the inducer is wind. However, to my knowledge, meaning Carl's knowledge, we still, we still don't know much about this repressor. From your studies, do you have any, any ideas or thoughts on the identity of this repressor? This is an
1: excellent question. Uh, the answer is yes, but just I will take one step back before I tell you exactly what the answer is. It's absolutely correct that in every signaling system, for example, in the WINS pathway that was just mentioned, inhibitors such as DKK are induced by the same signaling pathway. So this mechanism of reaction diffusion and the relevance of it to biological patterning or biological function has been established long, long time ago, uh, way before uh, you know the studies that I'm showing you. The big question was, and it's exactly what is being asked here, what is the... What, if we're talking about um, ligands and inhibitors, and we're applying BMP4, what is it that blocks BMP4 action? And that's another reason why I think it's really highlights the importance of working with human systems. Only in human systems, BMP4 induces nogging its own inhibitor as an immediate early response. This does not happen in the frog, the bird, or the mouse. These kind of species-specific differences evolve the Turing mechanism in such a way that it links different inhibitors in terms of how fast they respond to their own inducers. In the frog, BMP4 will induce noggin later on in development. Noggin will always act as an inhibitor of BMP4 as discovered by my graduate advisor, Richard Holland. But only in humans, noggin is an immediate early. So the inducer, the minute you present BMP4 to the gastroid, you induce noggin, and you induce noggin at the edge. And the consequence of inhibition at the edge is the cascade of self-organization that I showed you. So that's an excellent question, and the answer is noggin.
0: (laughs) Well, good. So Giovanni Giovanni Paranosto has the following question about the cerebroids. Uh, do they have input and output, and would it be possible to test if they can actually perform functions like computations or
1: learning? It took a long time to be able to detect activity. I don't know if you notice. we call this late cerebroids, because... They have to mature to a point where there's actually guidance and axons and connections and everything else. In, in randomized culture in a petri dish, it takes us a hundred days, 100 days to, to detect the oscillators that I showed you. This is the work of Gistcraft in my lab. In micro pattern technology, you can reduce that because the way you approach this is you push the cells to become telencephalic neurons in randomized cultures. Then at day 45, you take those cells and you impose geometry. And then you see what I showed you is pulsing that self-organizers. And so is there input and input exists, output and input exists in two different flavors. One is expected. One is the ability of the cells within the self, self-organizing cerebroid to establish contact and somehow communicate. I have no idea what they're talking about, but certainly they're communicating. The second one, which we're still trying to figure out, and again, that was by complete uh, chance of changing the size of the circles and the proximity. Everything I showed you was circular geometry. I didn't say much about how close this thing can be or far away they can be from one another. In trying to address the distances, something unexpected happened. In addition to the intra-communication among the cells, there is also intercommunication from one cerebroid to the other cerebroid, which is 100% stereotypical within a given size and geometry. You actually can make these networks of communication. You can measure activity in the network. You can quantify it, as my theoretical physics guys love to do, at a resolution that is beyond belief. But I still don't know what is this, what kind of, representation is this? What is it that's being accomplished? We certainly do not provide sensory stimuli in this. Uh, They're grown on regular incubators. So there are other experiments from Paola Arlota using 3D cerebroids, as you know, where she can show that there is responsiveness to sensory inputs. We're not there yet. In the future, I I would make a bet, in the future, the, the most powerful Computing system and information processing system would be based on organic software, like the one I think we're showing here. It's going to take time, but I think this is the future of trying to do information processing at all levels. And again, we have to be very careful about you know, having the discussion move forward even before the science is moving, just like it was for the case of 14 days. But now we're in a place where we can see information processing by human security that self-organizes itself. So I think the potential is tremendous.
0: In the Huntington uh, gastrulation model, uh, if you were to make chimeras between abnormal and wild type cells, would you ultimately lose the phenotype or could you rescue the phenotype? That's
1: another excellent question. We have not done that experiment, but... And for the exact same reason as I self-criticize the micropattern technology being on glass substrate and the relevance to embryological ecosystem, the same can be criticized about my arguments regarding the phenotypic signature of Huntington as CAG-based dependent. We have not, and we should, we have not transplanted this indirectly the, the purpose for the gasculo, it was to say, can I break symmetry? I think in the case of the Huntington, the experiment much be, might be even easier, more like uh Nicole Ledouard 1950s experiments. Huntington's first target, at least the first sign of the generation happens in the medium spinal neurons, as you know, the MSNs. These are ventral fates that are localized in the brain, in the early brain. So the experiment I would do in line with the suggestion here, which is to transplant those cells. To the same area of a cheek embryo, but more advanced cheek embryo so this this I will rather than going at the earlier stages of node transplantation like what intended did to more like at the neural plate neural tube grafting experiment, and that should tell us a little bit more at least at the same level in the context of a real embryo or at least in the context of a real CNS, what is it that that we think is going on? And then if this rescue was correct, how would it be different by putting the wild type on top of the expanded CAG? You probably know that this kind of changed the way we think Roche was running a clinical trial almost phase three in using SIRNA and and factors that would reduce Huntington activity. In our hands, or in all based on our observation, the reverse was required, not inhibition, but, adding, but instead adding more wild type activity. Because if you have lost something, the only way to replace it is to put it back again, not to reduce it even more. And those clinical trials stopped. And the situation actually got a little bit worse when this kind of approach was being used to a point where there was a realization that, that this is not the way perhaps to move forward uh, gene therapy might be the issue. That's one of the solutions for this. Unfortunately, that's a huge giant protein and 67 exons. It's beyond the cargo capacity of your viral vectors like AAV and others. We are together with other collaborators designing approaches to deliver chunks of it as opposed to the whole, the whole train. Maybe we can deliver one, one wagon at a time, but we're not there yet. To me, ultimately, this is what we're looking for. And that hits that you see uh, as a positive and the ruling screen is in agreement with enhancing gain of function in order to compensate for what was lost.
0: This question concerned uh, your synthetic ovary structure uh, with yeah. the oocytes, And the question was, uh, how were the primordial germ cells generated? In the they embryo, did. don't the primordial germ cells form at the posterior embryonic extra embryonic interface and migrate to the ovary?
1: Absolutely, yes. The answer is uh, to the best that we know. Of course, we're exploring the non-human primate to confirm that the origin of where we think things come from. And there are some. There is at least one publication that suggests that in primates, PGCs are derived from the amnion. They're moving down, and again, we're the migration is correct the origin is still a little bit debated but overall it is ultimately they have to take a long journey um, based on where they're born to ultimately end into the gonads it's far away and one of the routes that they take is you know the posterior gut tissue to to migrate there um in our case we just get the product of self-organization this is bmp4 application it's a step presentation of a ligand And for as long as you confine geometry, not only you get the embryonic germ layers, but when I talk about extra embryonic tissue that surrounds in the outer edge of a circle, this is an islet 1 positive population. That's an amniotic, that's an amnion style of cell. So the juxtaposition of amnion with epiblast is sufficient to induce the formation of the PGCs and to self-organize. We have done this only on the XX background. We have another line on US1 that's an XY background. This at the early markers it does the same. The big question is: how do you in vivo validate? Or how do you even validate within an embryonic ecosystem? When Tati Kana was in my lab, together with Rohan Sam my MD PhD student, they tried to reinsert or graph these cells. Within the gonadal reach of a cheek embryo. And and it's interesting because you can actually inject those things in the macrovasculature in oval and they will home. So she showed that even on the extra embryonic vasculature, if you inject these PGCs that are traced, they will undergo migration by the side you know, of the gut and they will contribute to the, the gonad of the cheek. But the efficiency of that co- contribution was not sufficient, at least for me, to be convinced that this is not a stochastic event. In other words, how many cells that you would inject in a vessel will actually end up in the gonads with the kind of ratio that we're measuring. It is true that it was very intriguing to see that the the route they are taking is the same as what we recognize in model system, but this was not functional assay. And I think functional assay, to be honest, will not happen the ultimate functional assay would be to fertilize that egg. And so right now, based on the ISSCR guideline, to which I contribute to and I respect, formation of PGCs can occur with molecular markers. For example, I can use a meiotic marker to say, yeah, this is a PGC. But there is no allowance at this moment to allow the functional testing by fertilization. I think in the future, uh, downstream of debates, these kind of uh, issues will re- resolve themselves. And certainly, as we did in the previous discussion, there will be a place where concerns can be balanced against benefits for humanity. And all of it should be respected in a way that accommodates all cultures and traditions. And I'm the first one to fight for that. So I will tell you more when I, when we fertilize one day, if I'm still here. <laughs>
0: One of the questions was, uh, is what is the fate of the human blastoid or gastroloid in contact with the chick chorioallantoic membrane? What happens to it?
1: We have not done, as you noticed, I showed a, a very high resolution static image. Mm-hmm. Uh, I showed the, the beginning, the transplantation, which is a circle, was a 500 micrometer diameter. And then the The window on the egg is closed. it goes to the incubator we we recover. I took a static picture and then I submitted it to the confocal microscope for the resolution I showed you. We have not done dynamics, and I think this is really the next the next frontier. It's not easy to do these experiments. you know Taty is probably among the few in the world who has this kind of resolution for grafting, and she comes from a school of of uh chic embryology so but we are, we are continuing in doing this experiment. The reality is it's difficult to stick a camera. We need to find, we need to find a way. And there are some ways. And again, my physics colleagues are instrumental in helping me doing that. That one day we'll be able to answer that question. As I stand, I do not know that it is beautiful because you notice that there was a delineation in the, in the embedding of the human embryo that was delineated side by side. It's as if like it makes its own territory within within that region. But I will not be able to answer that question until I until I can capture the movie.
0: Throughout your talk you you alluded to many physical properties that dictated fate determination. One of them, for example, was stiffness, the other was diffusion. Um, do you believe that you can model some of these molecular signaling by modifying things like stiffness or diffusion? Yes. Obviously because of mechanoreceptors or things of that sort. Do you, can you emulate those? That's a very, uh, and a very,
1: very important uh, question, and it's still uh, subject to a lot of debates. You know, I come from the School of Biology where we're looking at signaling factors that, was, that were necessary for establishment of fates establishment of competence to respond to a signal, the process of specification, determination, commitment, was always driven toward understanding the molecular basis of signaling. It comes from the Mangold and ex- experiments of grafting, where you say a group of cells has all the information that's necessary and sufficient to generate an entire secondary axis and the entire nervous system. So this is signaling. It took a hundred years to figure out what the signaling was. Among the first one was noggin again, and then the realization that you can inhibit both smart pathways and you would elicit the same outcome. You actually eliminate information. So the entire scrutiny was on these pathways, and then came bizarre observations, as you said, stiffness. If you pull on a cell, it changes shape. Of course, you induce signaling pathways when you do that, but I will argue that upstream of all this signaling cascade reside mechanosensation. And it's all these pathways are ultimately the consequence of things like confinement, egg stiffness, all these physical variables that we have loved to ignore for the past decades. And yet it surrounds us all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is delineated. Every organ, every individual, We have, we know the influence of temperature, of course. What about gravity? What about, you know, all these things that is a common physical attribute to the way things develop around us, not only in living systems but in non-living systems as well. These forces cannot be neglected. So I believe personally, and again, this is subject to debate because a lot of my colleagues who started like me and are what I am, still think we cannot establish hierarchy. They can say that they have an influence, But you cannot say that mechanosensory or mechanostimulation or any kind of force sensing actually occurs upstream. I would beg to disagree and happy to debate that, but that's where we are. I can change confinement and change fate. I showed you circles. If you make triangles or if you make squares or if you make Pac-Mans, the cells respond in different ways to the shape of the confinement and the geometry that they are adapting to. So to me, uh, mechanical sensation is upstream of signaling pathways, but I would love to be proven wrong and probably would be proven wrong one
0: day. Well, if it means anything, I actually agree with you. I think everything that we study ultimately comes down to fundamental principles of physics. So yeah. I, I will not disagree with you. I think I think it's <laughs> not. Um, with that we... You've been most generous with your time, and uh, thank you so much for sharing some just spectacular and insightful and forward-looking work.